When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features a titan of British and political broadcasting, David Dimbleby. Whatever you were expecting this to be like, I guarantee it will completely exceed your very high expectations. This is such a special evening with a man who is has all the authority you would expect and all the incisive analysis that you would expect. Just so thoughtful. And just watching him think and speak is mesmerising. But also... I mean, you may get a sense of this in the recording. He's so physical. Like, he's up and out of his seat all the time. He really acts things out. When he's telling a story, he's physically reliving it. Now, that does create a bit of an issue because occasionally his microphone does catch on his jacket just because he gesticulates and moves so much. So I do try and rectify that, and we've tried to reduce the noise of that. But just a bit of a warning. Any sort of ruffling and popping sounds were uh, the inevitable effect of, of David Dimbleby's sheer comedic physicality. This is a real gem. Before uh, we come on to uh, just this treat of an episode um my future guests at the political party include on monday the 14th of november in just a few days time obviously it was meant to be matt hancock but he's in the jungle so we are going to rearrange that uh, if you've got a ticket you can either have a refund or you can keep your seat for jake berry who as you will know has already caused a whole load of fuss and has been very open and very honest about some of his colleagues and the situation that he found in government and a whole load of things. So the 14th of November, this coming Monday, with the former chair of the Tory party, Jake Berry, is not to be missed. That will be incredible. On the 5th of December, my guest is the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, at the moment heading for the Treasury in the next couple of years. On the 19th of December, it's the Christmas special with some very special guests about to be confirmed. Follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, to find out. Uh, live music from MP4, the cross-party parliamentary rock band. On the 23rd of January, my guest is Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. On the 6th of March, my guest is Eddie Izzard. And I've got some big names to announce for February that I can't quite confirm yet. So uh, follow me on Twitter for those. And and if you look at the um, blurb, the show notes um, to this show, whether you're listening on your tablet or your phone or your laptop, if you look at the blurb, there's a link to buy tickets. There's also a link to buy David's book, Keep Talking, which is superb. And he writes as well as he broadcasts. Obviously, he's just got such a distinctive voice. So when you're listening to him talk about politics, there's almost a fatherly element to it. He, In so many ways, he's been the person that, teaches us about politics, whether it's on election night or through question time or the many other shows, panoramas, interviews, all the other shows that he's been involved in. And just that he's got a great broadcast voice and and it's married with a phenomenal personality. So he's, everything at his disposal just makes him such a phenomenal guest. And he's just a really, really funny, but as well as being a great observer and an analyst of politics and someone, of course, who's been crucial to holding 
powerful people to get and the stuff on the monarchy in this is great and I ask him who he votes for I mean, it just this goes off I mean <laughs> once he takes some audience questions this goes off in some amazing tangents um stories about his brother and his father and his upbringing and his view of his own industry and his own life and career there's just it, there is so much to enjoy in this and and just for 84 I mean it's just I can't believe he's 84 it just is so fresh, so full of beans, so physical. So without further ado, enjoy. Of course, firstly, what, a, what an embarrassment of riches. I really, the last few months have been incredible to be a political comedian because there's just so much raw material to write about. Um, so firstly, um, uh, a, an opening monologue, as they'd call it in the olden days, about uh, the fortnight in politics, and then enjoy the wonderful David Dimbleby. And whatever your political allegiances, of course, we do have to, and it's only fair at the start of the show, to recognise what an achievement it is uh, for Rishi Sunak and for the country, whatever you think, whether you would vote for him or not, it is symbolic and it is important to recognise that uh, he is a prime, our first ever Prime Minister from a very small community, our first ever billionaire Prime Minister. <laughs> and According to Graham Brady, by the way, Boris Johnson did reach the threshold. So this whole thing where he said, oh, I've got the numbers, and then people said, oh, yeah, and then he pulled out, and people said, well, you can't have the numbers. Graham Brady said he had 102 nominations. Ingham Smith said that Boris Johnson the other week was begging for votes and frankly demeaned himself. <laughs> I would love, I would love to see Boris Johnson beg for anything. Just the pathetic, oh, go on, please. <laughs> oh, come on, look, just one thing. No, I probably won't even make it. Oh, no, please. Please. Oh, yeah, come on, please. No, I'll do anything. I'll do, I'll do anything to get your vote. Anything. Anything. Oh, come on, Nadine again. <laughs> uh, did that last time. You know, Carrie was living. I, I, I can't. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg immediately defending it. No, 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 it's, it's entirely normal for candidates to offer sexual favours in order to get on there. <laughs> well, no, no, there's nothing unusual at all. Indeed, it was a condition of my vote, and I'm, I'm proud to report that I'm fully satisfied <laughs> with what I received in return. Um, but, of course, Liz Truss is no longer Prime Minister in order for Rishi Sunak to become Prime Minister. So her final speech... You know, usually when you see Prime Ministers, and obviously we'd seen one leave just a few weeks before, and they do that final speech outside Downing Street, and they tend to get emotional when they talk about the country I love, or whatever it is. And uh, Liz Truss trying to defend her legacy after just five weeks in the job. You know, usually they say, we leave Britain a more tolerant society, or the economy is better when I leave. The she literally just said... We reverse the national insurance increase <laughs> and we help families with their energy bills. <laughs> this is the most pathetic legacy. I helped reorganise the office, I set up a secret Santa uh, and I ordered toner for the printer. <laughs> of course, Rishi Sunak uh, then had to follow and some of his speeches are just incredible. He doesn't start off by saying, hi. As the new leader of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister, I want to address you directly. There's no sort of, like, flourish. He's straight in. I want to pay tribute to Liz Truss. Like, mate, we do need just those like, little touches. But even if you just said, good afternoon. <laughs> I want None of that. Just straight in. I want to pay tribute to Liz Truss. Like, mate, you can't deal with it. Imagine you introduced him to your mates in a pub. Oh, Steve, this is my mate Rishi. Pint of lager. <laughs> Firstly, he's over there. Secondly... <laughs> Fucking small talk, man. What's the matter with you? So strange the way he talks. And he does that thing where he's obviously not a natural orator. So you know, what they do is occasionally bad orators will just emphasise that every fifth word. 
I want to pay tribute to the way that Liz Truss served with courage and dignity. You know, this doesn't, it's the illusion of, it's almost like he's been, and he's like arse pinched midway. I want to pay tribute to the work that Liz Truss did while I'm trying to remain calm. Terrible orator, uh, Rishi, but he, um, he, he said, there was that bit at the end or so, he went, day in, day out, I will work tirelessly for the British people. <laughs> and then just stood there and you're like, is there a problem with the feet? I was watching it live on Sky News, I was like, it can't be a problem with Sky because the info bars are still moving at the bottom. But he's just rigid like that, you're like, mate, just walk off. Just say, thank you very much. Uh, or the work starts now, or whatever it is. So I'm like, Boris just stands there waiting and goes... And then what, you're like, mate, you can't, you just stare at me like, you get thrown off the tube for doing that. <laughs> uh, Prime Minister's question is that awful. You know when really posh men pretend that they're into football? <laughs> it's such a weird thing, because you can smell it on people. You can t when people are genuinely into something, you can genuinely tell. And at the start of his first Prime Minister's questions, he said, yes, of course, uh, I'll be supporting Southampton, uh, but don't tell that to the leader of the house. Yeah, she's sports Portsmouth. Yeah, like, over-explaining the joke. He's like one of those people that's rather than just goes to games and picks up that sort of knowledge, it's almost like he spent too much time on the Wikipedia page of whatever team he's... I know, yeah, big fan of Southampton, yeah, formed in 1885, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, we play at St Mary's now, yeah, capacity of about 32,000, yeah, we played at the Delta in 2001, but that was 15,200, so yeah, real fan, you know what I mean? And one of the worst things he's done, by the way, is uh, he's admitted he's a Star Wars fan, which is pathetic. I mean, for a grown man. I know people are into, there's probably a few Star Wars fans here, but you like, yeah, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, yeah, love a bit of, uh, you know, uh, Boba Flets, uh, yeah, light sword. Uh, yeah, yeah, you just think, oh, there's just, I don't mind people going, I was into it when I was a kid, but when fully grown men are like, yeah, love Star Wars, still watch all the films, just think, oh, because there's a sort of, there's a type of nerd that we like, Philip Hammond, Alistair Darling, there's a type of nerd that we don't like, and it's grown men who are into Star Wars. But be nerdy about the economy and interest rates and tax, don't be nor nerdy about children's films. I mean, the problem is, any, any man who's into Star Wars, thinks they're Luke Skywalker. That's the problem. So he'll be sat there going, okay, well, I'm Prime Minister, so I'm Luke Skywalker. Uh, okay, yeah, Boris is probably Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, uh, right, who's Darth Vader? Uh, uh, Sue Ella, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, she'd be, be Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, ship all the migrants to the Death Star. That makes sense, yeah. Doing his shitty little Yoda joke. I mean, I'm amazed he hasn't done a Yoda. You know, they always do, like, Yoda. Star Wars fans, all they ever do is, like, Yoda. I'm surprised he hasn't done it in Parliament. Mmm, honourable gentleman he is. <laughs> Mmm, cut taxes, we will. <laughs> Biggest laugh of the set so far, so maybe he would be, uh, maybe he'd be on the right lines, actually, if he did that. But he, uh, he's also got a problem in some of the people that he's hired. Not just Soella Braverman, who has presided over this humanitarian crisis at a refugee centre. She, got, she went there by helicopter the other day. Well, she was playing Glastonbury. <laughs> I think she's J-Lo turning up at a detention centre. Fucking insane way to travel if you're a government... It's quicker to drive. And then you've got Gavin Williamson, who's in the middle of another bullying uh, um, crisis, uh, another bu bullying uh, allegation. Now, Gavin Williamson, obviously, just for everything you read about him sounds appalling. And the text that he was sending to Wendy Morton, who was then chief whip, to a female cabinet minister and a female colleague, are appalling. And they've been printed in the newspapers. And when you read them out, uh, they're terrible. One of them says, don't puss me about. Which is, I've never heard that word used in a, don't you puss me about. 
I'm not pussing you about, mate. You're, you're trying to puss me about. I don't know what he means. But you read them. You know when you read them in black and white, like these sound absolutely terrible. One of them, he says, it's very clear how you're going to treat some of us. And it's not very nice. You're going to do fuck all for the rest of us. And it's horrible. I can see what you're up to. And you think, God, this is brutal. Black and white. Uh, a privy councillor to a cabinet minister. This is terrible. The problem is, obviously, is you need to read them in his voice. Um, which, if you're not familiar with how Gavin Williamson sounds, he doesn't sound hard. <laughs> He's the guy, you may remember a few years ago, told Russia should go away and shut up. <laughs> now, I'm sure it's terrifying when you get messages like this, but if you read them out in his voice, literally all menace is removed. Don't you puss me about. <laughs> oh, oh, I know what you're up to. Yeah, yeah. You're doing fuck all to get me on side. You are. I said to that Wendy, I said, don't you puss me about. <laughs> Oh, I'll push you right back. Oh. At one point, he says to her, what, what he wanted was, he wanted an invitation to the Queen's funeral, right? But he wasn't in the cabinet, and not a senior government minister. There were obviously limited seats at the Queen's funeral, which, I mean, it's just below Glastonbury in terms of how many people were trying to get into it and the likelihood of getting a ticket, right? And he sends her a message, and he says, uh, he says, you've rigged it. It's disgusting how you're using her death to punish people. You're like, how have you managed to make the death of the Queen about you? <laughs> oh, it's terrible, the Queen dying, isn't it? I wasn't even invited to the wake. Oh, it's terrible. Well, I know, I'm a privy councillor, didn't even get an invite. I said to Wendy, I said to that Wendy, when I do use the name, by the way, because she pissed me right off, I said, I better be at the King Coronation, otherwise you're dead to me. Well, she hadn't replied, I reported me to the chief whip. Bitch. <laughs> it's an uh, incredible way to carry on. Uh, a great interview with Rishi Sunak, by the way, uh, for people feeling in the festive mood uh, this morning. Exclusive interview in The Sun, where he was asked, uh, given uh, the budget that we're going to get in a couple of weeks, is he going to be Scrooge or Santa? And he gave a very revealing answer. He said, well, I want to be Santa uh, because I'm very pro-Christmas. <laughs> well, it's like it's a policy decision. I want to lead a pro-Christmas government, unlike the party opposite. But like, no, you can't, like, that is not a thing that you go, I'm very pro-wiping my bum, yeah, it really works for me, yeah. It's not the sort of thing, that's not pro or I mean, default setting is people quite like Christmas. Like, it'd be weird if he was like, no, I fucking hate Christmas, yeah. Well, I'm stuck with the in-laws for two days, the little brats running around, breaking whatever toy I've got, they weren't even, but I'm not going to Argos again on fucking Boxing Day. Sat there in front of the town, I don't even like the vicar of Dibley or Wallace and Gromit. Forced to, I'd rather watch the football, but that makes me the bad guy. Yeah, football, yeah, I'm actually quite a big fan, actually, yeah. Yeah. Watching every Boxing Day, yeah. Man, the stuff he goes... And then he goes, it's this interview, if you read it, he goes, I want to be Santa because I'm pro-growth, but I do want to get borrowing under control. You're like, that's not really Santa shtick, is it? <laughs> oh, ho, ho, little Timmy, well, you'd like a PS5. Well, the Bank of England have raised the base rate. <laughs> According to the OBR, inflation should be under control by Q3. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't audition for Miracle on 34th Street yet, that's what I'm saying. I mean, but it's not Rishi Sunak's policy on immigration that's under the microscope this morning. It's Keir Starmer who's given an interview to BBC Scotland where he said, I don't want open borders. <laughs> Free movement is over and it's not coming back, but we recruit too many people from overseas into our health service. And some people said, this, he sounds racist. Now, I kind of know what he means, but it does sound pretty blunt from a man who tends to be quite tactful. I just think, I mean, 
He's an unlikely racist, isn't he, Stark? I can't imagine him ever really saying anything. I want to build a country built based on equality and tolerance and respect for people who were born here. <laughs> of course I respect other people's cultures to an extent. If anything, surely he's too verbose to be a racist. They tend to cut to the point, don't they? All I'm saying is British jobs for people who fulfill the geographical requirements as laid out in the 1987 Immigration Act, enforced, of course, by local authorities in partnership with regional stakeholders. It's quite the same zing that some of the uh, far-right slogans used to have, but he... Uh, the incredible revelations actually about Rishi Sunak was that when he became Prime Minister, he was in TGI Fridays in Teesside having ribs with his daughters. Now again, why is he going to TGI Fridays? Only a fucking maniac would eat there. It's, ter it's such a terrible lack of... I think that's the sort of thing that will put the country off him. No one eats there anymore. Like, you know he eats at TGI Fridays? I think that would lose them the next election. From a man who eats at TGI Fridays and takes his daughter's there. You might as well have gone to Wimpy. Like, what are you doing? Going to the, the breadth of choice we have now in the UK. Do you know what? The one in Teesside, I Google mapped it. In the same vicinity, there's a Five Guys and Nando's and a Burger King. <laughs> this is... I mean, a gen we need a general election now. We cannot have... I mean, we cannot afford another day. I think Starman should bring it up at PMQs. Can the Prime Minister confirm? Did he take his daughters to TGI Fridays? Yes, I did, Mr. Speaker, and I'm pro-TGI Fridays, and I want TGI Mondays, TGI Tuesdays, TGI Wednesdays, and TGI Thursdays. But I'm afraid it's just not good enough. We know from Google Maps that there was a Burger King at Nando's and a Five Guys in the vicinity. But he doesn't want the Burger King. He's richer than the Burger King, and he can't find Five Guys who agree with his economic policy, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> order! Order! No, no, no. I don't mind. Look, I'm, no, no, no. I'm dealing with it. You shut up. Right. I don't mind. It's perfectly reasonable for the opposition to speculate on whether... No, no, no. I'm dealing with it. You be quiet. You... For the leading opposition to speculate on whether the Prime Minister... I will come to the Prime Minister. But, look, in this house, he knows, he knows we don't refer to monarchs, right? Whether it is... No, no, I'm dealing with it. Shut up. Whether it is our monarch or indeed the Burger King, it's not OK. OK. Uh, difference to you, Mr Speaker, I would draw the question. Ladies and gentlemen, what a treat, what a treat tonight. I've been trying to get tonight's guest on the show since the day I began it, back in 2013, and I'm delighted that finally we've been able to get a hero of mine, a hero to many of you in the room, I'm sure, someone who presented every general election night from 1979 to 2017. So many major moments in our history. Thousands of episodes of Question Time. Someone who's not just a major figure at the BBC, but is fundamentally part of our country. When you think of news, of current affairs and politics, it's tonight's guest's face and his distinctive, beautiful voice that has been the, the, the commentary to so many big moments in history. Particularly, who can forget well, it's 10 o'clock, the exit polls are coming now, and uh, we hope they've been telling us the truth. And it says that Tony Blair is going to be Prime Minister, <laughs> and a landslide is likely. Please welcome David Dimbleby! <laughs> welcome to the show. 
Oh, that was all a load of bunkum. <laughs> Is the 97 election the highlight of your career, David? Which one? 1997. No. 92? <laughs> no. What was, what was your favourite? Oh, the best one was um, when, they went, um, when they had the coalition. It went on for, I liked it because it went on for three days. <laughs> I mean, the longer the better. You don't get paid anymore, but it was just very interesting. And they went, we finished the election on Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And we had, we had a great thing, because we're rather sort of bit stuck up when we do election programmes. We feel ourselves to be the kind of aristocrats of broadcasting. And the news broadcasters are rather lesser animals. <laughs> but they have to broadcast all the time. And we come on and do these bits. And I remember Hugh Edwards was standing there doing his bit, and... I saw the floor manager go up and say, can you move out? David's here. And Hugh looking at me and said, furious. <laughs> and I came on, oh, hello, Hugh. And then took it. I love taking things over. Not, not, I'm not taking this over. <laughs> but I, I, it's just fun, you know? And did you, was what? there any rivalry with what you would say, well, hang on a second, I, I've got a couple of other things yeah. I need to see, Hugh. No, 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 I don't know, sweetness and light in the BBC. No, no competition ever. I, I remember once being taken off early in the morning and somebody else, I think it was you actually, coming on. I was furious because I wasn't able to say goodnight at the end or good morning. I just had to be shuffled off and somebody else shuffled on. No, no, we're all friends. <laughs> and You'd expect that, wouldn't you? I mean, we all work for the BBC. The BBC is in a state of total, consistent, constant chaos. And everybody hates everyone. <laughs> And the only people I love in the BBC are my editors. I've always fallen in love with my editors. They are, and, and the people who whisper in my ear and tell me what to do, because otherwise I'm kind of a puppet, really, on politics. I mean, I don't, I just do what I'm told. But I, I, I love the people who tell me, when, you know, when somebody comes four in the morning and I'm sort of getting a bit sleepy and somebody comes in and sits down and he said, David, you, to interview him, I say, OK. And I, Who's, who is it? <laughs> I remember, I can't remember, I, so I push a button and the producer, I, who's this I've got to talk to now? <laughs> it's Michael Portillo. Oh, right, Portillo. <laughs> Michael, thank you for coming in at this late hour. You know, it's, it's fun. I don't know, I'm doing all the talking, you're meant to do the talking, not me. Not at all, no, no, no. It's, no, no, it's no. you that's meant to do the talking, but you've always had such a, an air of composure and authority. When you think back to your early days in broadcasting, were you always like this, or uh, to some extent uh, have you polished those skills? Um, I think I was... Uh, I think I've always been... Um, I've always had a kind of self-confidence, probably unjustified. But I think I, my, my way of handling things has hugely changed uh, with, with experience, with time. Um, I mean, when I began, I began as a reporter after I left university in Bristol. And I had to do, um, I was on the, you know, I was just a freelance. I've always been a freelance. I didn't actually belong to the BBC. So I'd go out and do news, news reports. And I remember the very first one I did was a, f a fire that had broken out in a school in Somerset. In, um, and the, the primary school had been burnt to the ground. And I was sent out to do a story about it. So I drove up. I had a microphone and two microphones, one for television, one for radio, got paid five pounds 
£8.50 if you did television as well. And I was trying to pay off my debts because I wanted to get married. And the girl's father had said I couldn't get married until I paid off my Oxford debts. So, you know. <laughs> so there I was with two microphones. And I'd never done an interview before. I had the slightest clue what to do. And I, I looked at this school that was in ruins. And I said, this must be very, very upsetting for you. And the headmaster said, yes. And I expect you'll have to start from scratch rebuilding it. Yes. <laughs> and you'll be looking for the parents to, to help. Yes. <laughs> I thought, right, done, job done. <laughs> I, 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 went back, I went back to Bristol and the news editor said, it's meant to be the other way round. <laughs> you know, he does the talking, <laughs> not you. So it took me a long time to learn how to do that. I mean, it is difficult to know how to ask questions. It actually is quite... That, I learnt a lot from... I wonder if any of you remember Robin Day with the bow, yeah. bow tie, yeah? He taught me... I, I'm not... He didn't teach me, he tried to screw me, but he... T <laughs> <laughs> he was very, very... Uh, he was a very um, aggressive person and, uh, and, and very... Um, and kind of egotistical, but, but he was a brilliant interviewer. He, he really developed the way of asking politicians questions and was obsessed by it. And um, he... Um, party conferences once and he'd been off to do an interview with the Home Secretary which had been played into our coverage and he came back and sat down great sort of half beside me and lit a cigar and turned to me and said well what do you think of that and I said well I didn't think he said anything very new not the answers you fool the questions <laughs> <laughs> and he, he taught me you know the questions the questions what matter and, um, and but it's, it's quite difficult to learn how to, how to question and how to keep questions going, and particularly in politics. I mean, we used to, when we interviewed Thatcher or Major or Blair, we'd spend a good week working up the interview, and we'd role-play it, always. Um, you, you know, if you, were, if you were my producer, I would play Thatcher and get you to try out questions on me, and see how she would answer, and then we'd play it back the other way, and you'd try and hone questions so that there was, like, uh, there was no kind of exit, because it's so easy for politicians just to ride over what you ask and just burble away. Uh, and you have to hold their feet to the fire. A lot of the work goes into that, and also to um, working out what kind of answers you'll get and where you'll go with the answer. So, it, and they're terrific to do, because in the end, you do 40 minutes live, and you, if you put a foot wrong, you know, you can't recover. So they're, they're, always, they're always exciting, those, that kind of political thing. But again, I learnt that. I mean, Robin, Robin, we did one with Harold Wilson, that must be way back in the 60s. Um, a panorama, once a year, we always did a panorama interview with the Prime Minister. They didn't do it anymore. And we did one, and we go and have a meeting with Robin in his house in Notting Hill Gate on the Sunday. And it was my first go, and he was chairing a panel of three interviewers, which is always a mistake, because actually, if you have three people interviewing, um, the interviewee can part play one off against the other, you get nowhere, you know, you have to just have one person, look them in the eye. And uh, we were talking about what questions we'd ask, and I couldn't think of anything very much, and then Robin said, I've got a question for you, David, why don't you ask Mr. Wilson, uh, Prime Minister, why, uh, people say you're passing too much legislation. Um, and you could cite the Duke of Edinburgh, who's just said, uh, we'll soon need a, a law to breathe. So I said, oh, all right, I'll try that. So we come to the studio, and he turns to me and says, David, you've got a question for the Prime Minister. So I say, uh, Mr. Wilson, um, 
People say that um, you're passing too much legislation. The Duke of Edinburgh indeed said he needs a law to... Harold Wilson just puffed his pipe and looked at me kind of with snake-like eyes and just said, funny that, most people think I'm not passing enough legislation. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and I, I always thought afterwards that Robin had planted it on me. No, I was too naive to realise would, what would happen. Right. You've obviously found yourself opposite well, every Prime Minister that we've had. Uh, uh, yeah. Have you had Rishi Sunak on Question Time? No, no, I don't think he ever came on Question Time. Uh, Certainly in the time that you were doing Anyone in the audience know if Sunak came on Question Time? They're here. <laughs> he didn't? No, no, no. No, we haven't had So not Sunak. But of, of, of well, Liz Truss we had. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean no, we could never, ever... To be, I don't want to be unkind to her, because I think it's brave and bold to do what she did and set us back, <laughs> set us back a few years. But, you know, uh, and, but she, she came to Question Time and we could never make out what she was on about, really. She, <laughs> and, and she was always... The one thing is, she was a great, she was a great drinker and had fun afterwards, you know. But I, I'm, 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 after Question Time, I was in a terrible state. I could never make much of it. But we were always slightly puzzled by her rise to whatever fame she had at that point, which was quite low. It was when she did the, um, this has got to stop. You remember that speech? You can do that, can't you? Then you remember that? that is a disgrace. <laughs> I suspect all on autocue as a, that is a dis, full stop, dot, 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 grace. <laughs> <laughs> which is how Sunak did the thing that you had. Of, of not looking straight forward, because he's got yes. two autocues. That's right. So, good morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you do it, you know. It's but crazy. they have... Cameras do exist that have autocues on them. TV presenters use them all the time. They do, yes, I know. So I, know. I don't understand why politicians have started using ones that are off-centre. Because his, he was doing... Well, what he did outside on Downing Street... No, no, the cameras are way across Downing Street, so you couldn't read the autocue. There's nothing more dangerous than an autocue that moves away while you're reading it. <laughs> 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 so... So, <laughs> so, he, 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 so he had they have little autocues here just to, yes. to help, him, help him through. I don't, I don't like autocues really, they're horrible things. They make them very difficult to use. They're incredibly difficult to use naturally. Very, very tough. But anyway. Of the Prime Ministers that you interviewed, yes. who was the most formidable? Oh, uh, Thatcher without any doubt. Uh, um, because, in, it's an interesting thing, because she took her politics very seriously. If you read the three volumes that Charles Moore, Lord Moore of Etchingham, he's <coughs> so bold, has now written, about Thatcher, you'll see that she was, she was really worked hard. And we found uh, in, this, in this book I've written, oh, you haven't mentioned my book. <laughs> Can I mention my book? What's of course, keep what's talking, available keep now. Keep talking, so I will, I will obey myself. Keep talking. <laughs> so, um, I was going to mention it at some point. Oh, were you? Oh, 100%. You never said that before. <laughs> I, I got my copy signed upstairs. No, I, I'm not a commercial-minded person. I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, of anyway, course I was going to Keep talking, Hodder and Stoughton. Yeah, but it's great. Lovely. And it's a great book. It, it, is a, it's, it was a hard work. It's a hard back. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so yes, Thatcher, and we found in the course of doing this that she'd get letters after she'd done a panorama. She did a panorama interview, 40 minutes, um, January, for about four or five years, I think. I can't remember how, off, but how long it went on for. Anyway, she was, um, 
afterwards, and people wrote to her about it. She'd congratulate, they'd congratulate her on it, and she'd, she'd write handwritten letters back saying, I find it incredibly difficult. It was really interesting. You'd never get most politicians and things. I find it really hard. I get very nervous doing the, the panorama interview. And, and of course, we were quite nervous too. And we had this funny thing because we do the interview live from Downing Street, so we couldn't afford, because she had it in for the BBC, we knew that. I mean, not, she actually didn't do anything about it, but she had it in, like, you know, a lot of politicians have it in for the BBC. She had it in for the BBC, and one of the things she had was overstaffing, so was, we were very overstaffed. And we went to do an interview at Downing Street, I think it was the first or second I'd done, and she sat down and she looked at the flowers, were they in the right position behind her? And the bow, that right? And sit right and everything else? And oh, David, what a lovely tie. Um, yes, where did you get that? Oh, it was a hideous white silk tie. I must get one for Dennis, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Everything done to put me off my guard. And then she started looking round the, down in the room and down she, and started counting the crew that we had, the staffing, and she went, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She counted to 13 people. <laughs> and she said, why do you have 13 people? I had American television here this morning, Mr. Wimbleby, and they only had two. <laughs> so I thought hard and I said, well, there is a reason for it. This is going out live and we are treating you like the Queen. <laughs> this is, a, as far as the BBC is concerned, a royal broadcast. It cannot be allowed to go wrong, so we have double the number of people. <laughs> so normally we'd just be, what would be, six and a half. <laughs> but actually, now we're... Anyway, so she was, and she was terrific to interview because she was so determined. She, she didn't avoid questions, but she was determined to try and answer them, which is the key. The, the, she was good in that way. That's what politicians should do. And they lost the trick, you know, well, they didn't lose the trick. They realized you didn't have to, and you could get her away like Blair did, you know, with, with dodging and weaving and all that. But, but she, she was good, and I remember once she, she was, and, she, and she showed her nerves, because we did one, I mean, I did several interviews with her. I'll tell you about the first, and remember, but did several with her. And one, there was one where she was talking about the National Health Service, and she was obsessed that the NHS waiting times in Liverpool against London uh, London was doing well at that time, Liverpool badly. Why was this? And she appointed a guy, she made it policy on the hoof and just announced, we'll have a review of it. Afterwards, she said, would you like to come up to my study for a glass of whiskey? So I said, fine, Prime Minister. Yes, I'd like to. I went upstairs to her study. I was quite callous and rather impressed by it. I went up and she immediately got out more statistics and proving to me the point. And I, to try and stop her, I said, um, uh, Prime Minister, do you think I could just um, ring my wife to see how the interview went? And she looked at me and she said, Yes, dear. Aren't we both lucky to have one? <laughs> <laughs> so, I feel so sweet. <laughs> Dennis, eat your heart out. <laughs> but the first time I interviewed her, uh, she'd just been made leader of the Tory party. And... Um, she went, it was before the election that she won in 79, she went over to Washington and she was going to meet Ford, I think it was president then, yes, um, and was going to sort of show her face as, she was rather popular because she was a right-wing conservative with the Republican Party. And so she went over and she had um, her PR man was with her, um, uh, organising, Gordon Reese, who was wonderful, 
looked a bit like Arthur Askey. Do you remember Arthur Askey? Anyway, he had big spectacles and chomped on a cigar. And um, he, he arranged all the, you know, the scenes that she'd do. And they, she agreed to give an interview, but she wanted it to be done outside the White House, sitting with the White House behind her, because she thought that that would give her the proper sort of status that she needed. So we tootle off to the White House, uh, to the Lafayette Park in front, at about nine in the morning. And we try and find a place. And there are benches, just benches, with the White House behind. So we sit on the bench. And we, the only way you can sit on it is like that, you see. Like, um, like that. If you sit that way, you see, we look, look, talk and talk. And the White House is there. What's the flaw in that? The shot of her is looking at me and not with the White House behind her. So she has to be there, says the PR man, like that, so she can. How do you do it? There's no chair there. There are no chairs anywhere. So I look around and I find a, a wastebasket with a plastic liner. And so I get this plastic liner and I pick it up and I turn it over and I can then go, if I can do it to you, in front of you, right? And sit in front so the White House can see. So that's fine. I'm on this wastebasket. And uh, we begin the interview, and, and Mrs. Thatcher, what brings you to Washington? Usual stuff, you see. At which point, this wastebasket liner starts to subside. <laughs> <laughs> and and, um, <laughs> and um, I say, so what are we going to do? And Gordon Reese is saying, you've got to be at the, at, uh, on the hill at, uh, in 10 minutes' time. It must panorama. Where does my duty lie? What can I do? There's only one obvious solution. <laughs> David. Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, so, 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 I, I, so I, I, did, I, I did, which would have been fine. I did the interview on my knees. I didn't mind being humiliated. I, uh, but, but I did the interview on my knees. But unfortunately, a, a passing British tourist saw this. <laughs> and, took a photograph of it and sent it to Downing Street. And so she had forever a record of the BBC on its knees in front of <laughs> I always accused her of having it. She never showed it to me, but I know I'm damn sure she had it. Anyway. I mean, there must be, regardless of your politics, people that, particularly someone who's suffered 11 years where you're interviewing them regularly and you're both developing in your careers together, that you're more fond of or less fond of, of the prime ministers you dealt with, who was, in effect, the one you were least fond of or your least favourite? Uh, not fond or non-unfond. Who was the hardest, the trickiest? Um, they're all tricky. <laughs> no, I seriously can't think of any. I can't think of... I, can't think of, uh, I mean, they're, they're all funny in their way, you know, and they all try and relax. I mean, John Major was odd when he was going in for that election that he, we thought he'd lose. He actually won rather well. He started, um, he started rolling up um, picking up pieces of paper and throwing them at me. <laughs> in, 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 Not from that in, same wastebasket. Yeah, in, 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 I don't know what he was doing, in the green room. So it was like bowling. I don't know, perhaps he thought he'd, if he'd lost, he always went to Lord, he was going to go to Lords, I think, perhaps he was just practicing. And then he was in makeup beside me, sitting like you are there, having our makeup done. And he said, Do you want a knighthood then? And I said, What? And he said, do you want a knighthood? David Frost wants a knighthood. <laughs> I said, really? I said, no, no, I don't, thank you very much. And he looked quite surprised. I and mean, they're weird, they do odd things. Harold Wilson just used to puff his pipe, of course, and look at you. 
I can't remember who else I did. Oh, Blair, we had a, yeah. I wasn't, I, the, I did do, the, when Blair was made leader of the Labour Party, uh, he, he, it gave us, politically, it gave us terrific problem because there was obviously at the end of the Tory chaos of uh, that, 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 you know, over Maastricht and all that, yes. um, there was a, a general feeling that Blair was going to win the election and that Mandelson had been very astute in repositioning the Labour Party and that people were kept on message and all that. And so we, we were working out, what do we, how, do you, how do you do an interview which in some way helps the audience, which is what matters, um, understand who this man is, decide whether to trust him in the election, in, which was then only, I think, I don't know, a month away or something, even, even less. Um, what do you, how, can you, how can you test somebody who has appeared to turn his back on the foot years and the Kinnock years and is presenting a new Labour Party? I mean, you know, rather like Labour now, you might say, but, but it, was, it was different then because, the, the, well, perhaps it wasn't so different because the Tories were in dif disarray then too. <laughs> so perhaps they're rather similar. Perhaps it'll be the same interview. But anyway, he... Um, he, he, he um, we, we've spent a week trying to work out what line of attack, not in a sort of, not destructive, but what, how would we demonstrate what it was? So we got it, we looked at all the things that he'd said when he was a foot supporter and decided the way to do it was to say to him, you used to believe this, have you abandoned all that? And on the day before the interview, literally, we had two researchers working on it and we were combing through everything and we found a select committee report on Thatcher's anti-trade union legislation, which Blair had sat on the committee and had said the Tories are trampling with hobnail boots on the rights of British workers. That's what he said, and that was four years back, five years back. Now he was saying that he wasn't going to repeal any of the Industrial Relations Act. And so I just put the question, um, how come, why should people believe you when four years ago, five years ago, you said this legislation was trampling with hobnail boots on the rights of working people? And he went completely white. It was kind of an unexpected line of attack. And Alistair Campbell was in the gallery and he was absolutely fuming, storming around. <laughs> anyway, um, Blair survived it and I never interviewed him again as Prime Minister. That was it. Wouldn't let me near him. That's, I mean, that's a long time. Yeah, it was quite a long time, wasn't it? Rat war. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm amazed that he didn't... I would have just presumed he'd have done those question time, ask the leader specials at election time. Oh, he did one of those. I did do one of those, yes. He did. No, I lie. You're right. He did. He came to question time and we did a, we did a thing actually with him alone, to his credit clean forgotten and we sat like this uh, with a, with a, in, in Brighton in, a, in Brighton and um, and it was when he um, yes he, he did he did whatever 50 minutes or an hour or whatever or an hour cross-questioning he was good at that and then I remember and then at the end he um, said something very weird about fox hunting that he was going to abolish it which had been forgotten he threw it in and at the very end what I really remember for was the very end a missile was hurled at him um, and from the very back of the, of the, of the audience, wonderful, it flew <laughs> through the air like that and it, it, it separated in mid-air 
and it was a very stale BBC sandwich, ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and it gracefully landed, the bread went there, the bread went, and I got the ham, which was just perfectly delectable. So he did do that, and I think he also did one of the sort of um, pre-election things, or may have done two or three of those, yes. But, but I never did face to... With an audience, it's different. Question time is a different technique from a face-to-face -face interview. So question time was, you, 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 the audience does the work. I mean, obviously, you, you shepherd the, the debate. The, the key of question time um, was that you always use the strength of feeling and the views of the audience. And your own views or your own questions were kind of ancillary to that. You might add one, you know, just push it a bit this way, push it that way. So I never actually did a straight interview with him until last year, actually. Yes, last year, last year or the year before. I did a podcast with him about the Iraq war. And he was sweet as pie and just chatted away for hours, you know. And did you ever say to him, oh, it's a while since you allowed me to interview you, Mr. Ray? <laughs> no, no, too, that would be infradig. And when you're, you talk about the Question Time audience, obviously people have their own views on uh, not just the panel when they're watching Question Time, but the members of the audience, and people go, oh, he's too right-wing, or she's too left-wing, yes. or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're putting your feelings to whoever's on the panel to one side when you're broadcasting. It was never obvious whether you thought people had made a fool of themselves or not. But with people in the audience, do you, did you regularly or ever think, oh my God, that person is a, you know, saying something that's appalling and we can't broadcast this? Or did you ever have misgivings about things that perhaps audience members were saying or the manner in which they were saying it? Or was the whole thing just a... a no, cool never. No, I loved it. Never. <laughs> I, did, I, only, I once threw somebody out, because, but only because he was right at the back and he was shouting away all the time and he wouldn't let anyone else speak and he was sweet as pie. He, he, I, he said, oh, all right, and he got up and to loud applause from the audience and disappeared. <laughs> But otherwise, no, I, the great strength of Question Time was the, was the range of opinion. And if you did have views that you, that you disagreed with or thought were horrific, it didn't matter because the audience would pick them up. So, you know, you get one person there saying whatever it is and another here would, would say, well, it's not true, it's your, that's not how I find things. That was the whole thing about the Catholicity of the audience, which was very carefully chosen. I mean, it, it, I think people... Sometimes, you know, we'd get politicians who would say, oh, it was all anti-Tory, or it was all anti-Labour. And actually, it was usually all anti-Tory when the country was, had gone anti-Tory and anti-Labour when the country had gone anti-Labour, particularly over the Iraq war, for instance. But we, we picked the audience and on an absolute, and it had to be agreed with the BBC, the ratios, Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrats, who were in Scotland, Scott Nats, Plaid Cymru, DUP, if we were in Northern Ireland, whatever, Sinn Féin. And we'd, and we'd balance that audience politically. So we could trust the audience. That was the great thing. You could trust the audience to be a genuine cross-section. And it was why we got into such trouble over Brexit, because the politicians come didn't realise that there was a lot of popular head of steam in favour of Brexit and would think that this audience is, you know, that Nigel Farage has been at them again, you know. And we'd often have Nigel Farage on the panel, probably a bit too often, actually, but we had him on 20, <laughs> 26 times, I think. And people attribute the, the Brexit decision to sing Nigel Farage, which I don't think is right at all, but he was, he was a factor. But, the, but this sort of balance of the audience is the thing that made it work. So as the chair of Question Time, or even the chairman, if I dare say it, of question time, you, 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 you didn't have to do that much. You just had to kind of make the thing work.
And with Farage then, it, it was the fact that he was booked so regularly, frankly because he was a bit of a star, and there's plenty of Eurosceptics around, but they don't deliver the same... still a TV show as well as being a, an yeah. important form to hold. I think that's exactly right, yes. How did you find him? Well, I mean, he, I tell you, I, I took against him when he advised me where to catch mackerel off, um, <laughs> off, off New Haven. And I went out with my... It's not my usually fish he's looking for in no, the water. <laughs> I went out with my son and, and we went out for a couple of hours in a slop in exactly the place where he said you'll always get mackerel and we didn't catch a single fish. And ever since then I've been rather dubious about his views on things. <laughs> Kind of quite work. But he, no, but he came on, there, he came on, there was a, an edict, it was interesting, the BNP as well, but then uh, I, I'm Nick not Griffin. comparing the two. But the BBC had a rule about who could come on Question Time on the panel, the politicians, okay. uh, which was that they had to be represented in, they had to be elected to a public office, uh, they had to be in Parliament. And Farage got in because UKIP or whatever was doing well, and they had two or three seats, I can't remember how many, in the European Parliament. And then that meant that they had a right, or it's not a right exactly, but the BBC trying to assuage public opinion and keep to the charter and be able to go into the select committee of the House of Commons and say they've dealt fairly with the politicians, actually had a ratio that uh, every week we'd have Tory Labour, kind of every other week, the Liberal Democrats, something like that. Uh, Scotland, when you were getting a bit of nationalism in. Uh, and UKIP, one, I can't know how many times, two or three times, then the problem was that most of the UKIP people, frankly, there were one or two quite good, most of them couldn't argue they were you know, out of a paper bag. I mean, they were just, <laughs> they weren't very good. And Farage, of course, is a terrific performer. I mean, I did a debate with Farage and Clay. that guy, no, the, who's the guy who now runs the thing that Elon Musk, Elon Musk didn't buy? What's the other one? Facebook. Facebook, yeah, Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg, that's the one, yeah, Nick Clegg. Um, <laughs> And, and, and we, 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 did a, we did a debate with Farage and Clegg, you know, which was great, which Clegg won hands down, actually, but Farage was a good, you know, I mean, won it intellectually, but he was a good, a good performer, so that's how you get that. And then, and then the BNP and Nick Griffin was much more difficult, obviously, because it was a, you know, Griffin was a, we, we, knew, we knew what Griffin was, a serious racist who had tried to moderate, to, gave the impression of moderating his views so that he'd win seats. Um, and indeed, under the PR system of the European Parliament, did win, I think, two or three seats yeah. in the European Parliament. So, uh, and actually, I've been trying to, to persuade the BBC to put Griffin on, because I, I like the oxygen of publicity. I think it's good to have all views. If they're, if they're not illegal, if it's not a crime to say things, I think all views should be heard. And so w the editor and I had been consistently saying we, we ought to have Griffin on. Anyway, when he finally won these seats in the European Parliament, he decided he could come on. And then we, uh, we so we invited him. And then we had, a, we had a, a, a problem. First of all, nobody would come and appear with him. We couldn't get Labour, Tory. We did in the end. We got Jack Straw to come. Uh, and we got Saeed Avasi for the, for the Tories. Um, and we got, uh, um, I was going to say Jermaine Greer, I don't know. It was Bonnie Greer. Bonnie Greer. Um, anyways, we could put a panel together and Nick Griffin. And I, uh, the, the, I, I was determined that we wouldn't 
have an ordinary question time where we talk about the rise in postal charges. The point of the programme was Nick Griffin. The point of the programme was, was racism gaining ground? And we had to hear what he had to say. And I'd, I'd, in years back, I'd made a film with the Ku Klux Klan in um, South Carolina. And I kind of knew how those, that, that ra those racist parties operated. And in the course of doing this research, I'd, we discovered this letter that Griffin had written to the head of the Klan, Duke, I think it was at the time, had written to the head of the Klan saying, because the, the Klan had been saying the BNP was going a bit soft on racism, I thought you wanted to get all black people out of Britain and you don't seem to be saying that. And Griffin had actually written back saying, we are moderating our views to win power and once we have, we will carry out exactly the same policies as you want to see in the southern states, which is all black people kicked out. And I found this letter. So come the day, uh, there's a huge demonstrations outside the BBC, which we barely heard, I've seen them on film since, with um, anti-fascist movement complaining, Griffin was even appearing, and charging, breaking into the BBC, roaring down the corridors past the rooms where we were working, so all the doors were locked. You say, stay where you are, stay where you are, and you just say, <laughs> like a kind of, um, Keystone Cops, you know, people being chased and chased. And if, if, if you ever knew that bit of the BBC, everybody gets lost. You know, you cannot find your way anyway. So nobody could find it. The security people were trying to find the protesters. The protesters were trying to find us. Uh, um, they, uh, they said they, they wanted to kidnap me so the programme couldn't go ahead, which I think probably not true. But anyway, and this massive... Anyway, then we finally get to the programme. And uh, he, in effect, just collapses because... The politicians on the programme just go on and on, and I use this thing about the clan and everything, and he ends up just sort of, he has a terrible smile again, <laughs> like that, looking completely unconvincing. And, it, and the audience was, there were people from the BNP in the audience, but the audience took against him, and it was, and it destroyed him. Um, people keep asking me, say, well, what if it hadn't? And I, I have no answer to that, but I do just think that was the right thing to do. I mean, that was the most controversial one we did that and the, and one on the on the, after 9/11, which we did, which was got that was never numbers. repeated. What the, is that right? The 9/11 one. Yeah, it was broadcast once and never. You basically can't find it. Can you not? Because no. I think it's one. Of, I'm, I'm sure I read that and I remember trying to find it. And it's because, and I think I'm right. There are certain people in the audience that say, "Well, America had it coming." And exactly that. America. The, the had mood it is very strange. Yes, it was on the Wednesday. The thing happened on Tuesday. On the Wednesday, America had it coming to them. And did anyone on the, on the panel agree with that? No, 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 I don't think anybody. We had the American ambassador on the panel, and the press said that he burst into tears, but um, he didn't. I saw him four or five days later. The, there was a memorial service in St Paul's, which I was doing the commentary on, and I saw him and said, is it true you were upset by what was said? He said, no, he wasn't. But it was, it was inappropriate. It was wrong. We should have... It was too. It was too. It was extraordinary that day after the 9/11 thing, because there were people who felt, yes, that the Iraq War, in a way, was this was a, a balance against the Iraq War, which was, you know, what can you say? I mean, it obviously wasn't, but but there was this terrible sort of passion about it, I think, and and we should have just kept not. The BBC said do it, and we did it live, so we couldn't cut out the most. The sort of the, the most obnoxious or the most hurtful remarks. And did you get the sense that they were just representative of maybe just a few dissenting voices? Yes. Or did they get rounds of applause for saying stuff like that? Yes, 
I mean, yes. A bit of both. It was actually perhaps quite a widespread there two, view. There were two, 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 two women who, who said it. Hmm. And just on Nick Griffin, so when you're um, obviously wargaming particular interviews, did you have discussions about what if he goes to shake my hand, will I shake his hand? <coughs> the no. question's on, often you go for a meal afterwards. Would he have been uh, invited to that? No, he certainly wasn't invited to a meal afterwards. In fact, we all had to go away, sort of, I don't know how we got out of the place, we were still surrounded by... Yeah, no, he wasn't invited. We'll go for a curry afterwards, Nick. Yeah, go for a curry. Bonnie Greer said, Bonnie Greer said to me, he did an extraordinary thing as he left. I said, what's that? He said, he gave me his visiting card and said, come and see me sometime. He said, I don't, what am I to make of that? I said, I don't know. And he he had these heavies, and they they were real heavies. You know, I've seen heavies, but these were (laughs) heavies. And this little figure. <laughs> very strange. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So do you still watch Question Time? Mm, I haven't seen it since I stopped. Why not? Do you not know when it's on? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's on too late. (laughs) No, I haven't. I don't, I, you don't. I, 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 never wa- I never watch anything I've done myself. And, I, and I'm, you know, wh- why would I watch it? Curiosity. No. <laughs> no, I don't think I... Don't, I but maybe I will one day. Um, I, thought, I thought, no, you know, I'd made it my programme and I left it meaning to leave it after 25 years. And I thought, that's done. I didn't actually want to see how it was done afterwards. I didn't want to see it. I, I mean, I, I didn't... It's not how I watch politics. It's how I play politics on television. But I don't... I wouldn't watch... I mean, question... I say this. I mean, question time has a huge audience, and it's a great programme. But it's not my way of watching politics. I, I don't, and I don't like inter- other people interviewing politicians. I, don't, I, 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 I read my politics in the paper, really. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't watch. You know, I don't watch the standard stuff. I just but don't. I never political have podcasts done. are good, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did watch. I did watch. I have to admit, I did watch Liz Truss's arrival and her departure. I did think those were magnificent moments of <laughs> British history. And and yes, They're, but how do you find out what's going on in politics, really? Because it's such a murky business, and I feel. I do, f- I mean, I, this Tory party is obviously sort of tearing itself apart um, in a way that the Labour Party once did and now as under the 
strict command of the man you so beautifully imitate has become the dull party, which will win the election and we'll all go and sleep. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but, the, but the Tory party, I mean, is, it's like soap opera, isn't it? It's just quite extraordinary how it goes on, quite extraordinary. And, and, uh, and I pick up that by, mm, I don't know, listen to the occasional speech, but no. I'm embarrassed. I should have said I watch Question Time avidly, shouldn't I? I well, no, because then I would have said, what's your favourite thing about it? You'd have come undone on the supplementary questions. I think, I, no, I think it's done very well. <laughs> From what you gather. Stop it! <laughs> but obviously, to, to generations... We're sensitive people. souls. I told you at the beginning, oh, broadcasters, we're very sensitive. <laughs> so... You're obviously from a, 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 a broadcasting dynasty, the, the, the great yeah. Dimbleby name. Your father, Richard, who did Panorama before you did, and your brother, yeah. Jonathan, as well. Yeah. Was there ever a sense of sibling rivalry? Because there was a period where you were both the major interrogators on television of politicians. Uh, you know, I don't think that... I don't think that we've, we've always been very... I mean, because we're brothers, and, and because we love each other very much, we've always been very aware of... Um, getting across each other about broadcasting. And to tell you the absolute truth, I think I'm right in saying we have never, ever discussed what one or the other of us has done. We just take it for granted and we talk about other things. So Jonathan would never tell me about, I had this interview with so-and-so, went out, did an amazing film in Ethiopia about the famine long before the one Michael Burke did, which got Haile Selassie removed from power and all that. We've never talked about it because we're both aware that, that, that this sibling thing could be difficult. So we don't. So we talk about our children and we talk about sailing. I take him sailing, he takes me sailing, he tips me out into the water, I don't mind. <laughs> he did. He, he, the other day. He's a real bastard, my brother. He got, He's, I have a boat that I take him sailing with. He is always restless about boats, and he buys a new sailing dinghy every year because he's never satisfied with the one he's got. And he got one that he said, he said to me, he must come out in this new boat, it's wonderful. He said, it's uncapsizable. <laughs> the, the, the trouble is he'd misread. What he actually said, it was unsinkable, which is not the same. <laughs> and we were sailing out at sea, and he made a mistake, and I... Of course, I wouldn't say this in front of him, but he made a mistake, and the boat capsized, tipped over. And I fell into the water under the sail and had to swim out. Under. And then the boat, because it was not uncapsizable, but it was unsinkable, came back upright, with him still in the boat, <laughs> and with me hanging on to the, a bit of a ladder at the back. You know. And we were about a mile out, well, half a mile. Well, let's say half a mile out at sea. Well, maybe a quarter of a mile. But anyway, quite a bit out at sea. We were out of the harbour. And the boat was sailing along, so the wind was blowing, and Jonathan was happy at the helm, and I was hanging out to the back. Thinking, How do I get out of this? And we, luckily, we, as we were coming into the harbour, we passed a, an, another boat, and there was a bloke on it who saw we were in some trouble, and so he, he, he got into a dinghy, rowed across, said, can I help you? Rowed across like this. And he saw Jonathan, and he said, Last time I saw you, you were making a speech in Liverpool about the Battle of the Atlantic, your wonderful book on the Atlantic. I did think it was... There's one point in it, and I was still hanging on the back. <laughs> 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 me, me, me. 
Anyway, so no, so Jonathan and I, yes, and we, we, we no, we're very, we we don't have that kind of rivalry. But luckily. do you ever swap notes? Do you ever say, oh, um, I saw you interview with Tony Blair actually? And I no, never, 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 never. Never refer to each other's work at all. At all. And did that? But mind you, I never refer to anybody else's work either. I mean, t people are people are like this on the whole. They don't. Robin Day is the only one who would go out and say, what do you think of my interview? What do you think of that question? Most people do it, and they're very focused on it, and they don't want to ask. They certainly would, they'd ask producers' advice. Yeah. The people you trust in television are your researchers and your producers. You don't trust the stars, because they want your job. So why should you trust them? <laughs> I mean, they're lovely, and you treat them nice, you know, but you don't say, uh, do you think I could have made that better? Because they might get, you know, ideas above their station. <laughs> so, so, so doing a big thing like elections, which are obviously, the, I mean, far and away the greatest theatrical moment, uh, and you, you said I did ten of them. Um, in those, you, you, you know, you, you're, you're like a ringmaster, and you're very, I mean, you work very closely with the people, Emily Maitlis or, you know, um, John Jeremy Curtis. Vine, for instance. Oh, Vine, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, but Jeremy Paxman used to do them. Uh, Robin Day did them. You work closely with them, but you don't sort of talk about how you'll handle your bit. It's your bit, and you work on it with your producer and your researcher. And actually, the producers are the ones that are most jealous of the other performers, because they want... They, they, they're, 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 what's the word? Not coaxing you, they're schooling you. They school you. You are their possession. You belong to the producer. You belong to the researcher because they get it in the neck if you do badly. You don't because the BBC think of you as a performer here today, gone tomorrow. Who cares? That's not quite like that. But I mean, that is how the that, that's how the cookie crumbles. So the editor of a programme gets it in the neck. Very rarely the presenter. It's a weird thing, and and therefore you you wonder what is it about presenting? And of course. What it actually is about presenting is being able to communicate all the ideas that from the production team and the programme and everything else have come through and to marshal those ideas. Like I said, to, you know, interviewing Blair about hobnail boots, I didn't find those two quotes. Researchers found the quote, you know. Um, <coughs> Thatcher on the National Health Service, we'd have had people working at the figures, you know, for a week. So it's, 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 you're very, you're dependent. I mean, I exaggerate, obviously, because actually, of course, you play a leading role. <laughs> <laughs> but could you, especially given your father, can you ever imagine <coughs> doing anything else? Did you ever want to do anything other than broadcasting? Funnily enough, I didn't, no. He wanted me to. He didn't want me to be a broadcaster. Uh, he thought uh, he'd, he'd been a very... Uh, distinguished war correspondent. He'd been in Belson, the famous first person to go into Belson, first broadcaster to go in. He'd been on bombing raids. He'd, you know, he'd been in the Western Desert, and so he was a, a distinguished figure. When he came uh, out after the war, apart from the coronation, I think he thought that the business of radio and television was sort of slightly. It was, you know, I mean, we, we were newspaper owners as a family. My great grandfather, my grandfather. My father, myself, we owned local newspapers in, in Richmond, in Surrey. And my grandfather was a Daily Mail political editor. Yeah. My great-grandfather, and he, he, he never really quite thought that being a broadcaster was, was serious. And after the war, when television was set up, 
uh, he began doing it, but he didn't think it was a sort of proper career. Um, so I think he'd like me to do something else, but I, I didn't because I've, I mean, first of all, I, I enjoyed it, even the terrible start when I was just saying, you know, getting it all wrong. Um, I just find the idea, I, it's, it may be a kind of laziness in a way, I just enjoy talking to people and finding out what they're doing, whether it's political or whether it's, when we did a whole series about painting in, in Britain or the building of Britain, I've done all sorts of other things, or learning how to do commentary on state occasions, which is itself another, another skill, um, mainly to do with not talking too much and keeping silent and letting the pictures work. All those things I just find fascinating. And, so I, and, and I've had the most amazingly uh, lucky life as a broadcaster. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in covered apartheid, met Mandela, filmed in South Africa for three years, making films about the nature of apartheid and the nature of the battle in South Africa, interviewed heads of state. I mean, all kinds of things that no other career, no other profession would have given me. Um, certainly not being a lawyer, where, you know, you, I, I didn't like the idea of being a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I know some lawyers. <laughs> all the no lawyers I know love it. Has to be said. They're all judges now. <laughs> but I, but myself, I think. I mean, I like the argument, but the the catholicity of range of what I've done has just. I mean, it's magic. I mean, what am I now? I'm 84 last week. So and I began broadcasting. I was 12 for God's sake, 12 years old. I did family favourites, wonderful radio program where you read out on a card. Could you play this for me or for my mum or for my boyfriend or something? And then they'd play a record on a, literally a record on a disc, somebody would lower a needle and play it. So we had this thing and I was, I, I was 12. I was asked to do it because of my father being famous. It was my first nepotistic <laughs> achievement. <laughs> and, and, and we went up and did it. And I remember because the, the, uh, the cards put in front of me and, and I picked them up and read them. And I picked this one up and it said, could you play uh, Fats Waller singing My Very Good Friend the Milkman said. You probably could, could sing that, could you? Do you know Fats Waller? No? Yeah, not the specific song. Not the anyway, underneath in brackets, the, the guy who'd sent this in said, um, P.S. I am blind. Twelve years old. I said, I just blurted out, uh, and I'm sorry you're blind, but I'm afraid there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> So awful. So awful. I think I thought... Did that person ever get in touch? No. No, the, I got a lot of people did try and get in touch. Um, and I, I had more, more, more fan mail than I've ever had in my life. I, had, I remember it very, I had 82 postcards and letters. And I, and I answered all of them except one that came from somebody saying, could I have a picture of you in your shorts? <laughs> I th even, I, even then I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> But I think I said, I'm afraid there's nothing to do about it, because I kind of thought the BBC could do anything. I thought the BBC was our family home, really. <laughs> and it was very small, the BBC then, and, and this, was, this must have been 50, well, I was born 38, 48, 1950. So it was, it was quite a small organisation. Everybody knew everybody. It was like a family. And, and I don't know, it's a weird thing to have said. It's haunted me ever since. <laughs> I wonder what he thought when he heard his I thought it was very sweet. 
Um, maybe. Because he's giving you know, the I mean, he probably thought, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> What's your view of politics then? Because I remember Adam Bolton saying that he didn't vote, which I thought was... I sort of understood well, that, that he then gave him a Pontius Pilate element, but do you vote? Yeah, yeah, I always vote. And have you always... Have you swapped your vote over the years? Yep. Voted everywhere. Well, in the mainstream, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and who at the moment do you think you'd vote for? I'm I've never rude asking because you're so BBC even though you're not BBC anymore. No, no, I've never, t I, I've never told anybody how I vote. I've, I've never told my wife how I vote. Nobody knows how I vote. Sometimes I don't even remember myself. <laughs> <laughs> But I have, the, I, know, I have the Robin Day answer, which is perfect, when he was quizzed about this on election night. And he said, very huffily, he was asked, how he was, I don't prepare to answer that question, it's perfectly obvious. I look at the proposals that the parties are putting forward and I decide which are the most sensible and I vote for that party. Thank you. <laughs> there you are. And you... Go on then. Whoever you voted for last time, yes. would you vote for that party again next time? Sometimes I vote for the party again next time, sometimes not. <laughs> Think about the next election. We all vote change from last time. When is the next election? Sometime between now and December 2020. Well, it's a long way to go, isn't it? If the election were tomorrow, would you vote <laughs> for the same party you voted for last time? I can't remember how I voted last time. <laughs> no, you can. You can. What a bloody shambles, isn't it? I mean, really. I do think it's dreadful. Don't you think? I think, <laughs> I, I think it, I think it, I mean, I, I keep on thinking quite seriously about where, where it began, whether it began, whether the decline of our kind of, not trust in politicians, but kind of interest, belief in it, began with Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction, whether that began eroding, and that great row that the BBC had about whether the government had knowingly changed the intelligence. Um, whether it began there, or whether it began with the lies on the bus, over Brexit, which, I mean, I, I remember endlessly saying to people on question time, that figure, I came up with, what was it, 850? 350 million. 350 million. And I kept saying, that's not the right figure, is it? And they always say, yes, I said, but we get a discount. It can't be the right, we get <laughs> 75 million back, or whatever the figure was. Everybody said the BBC never challenged it. We were always challenging the, the sort of stats that came up. But, but the, the failure in six years to deliver anything as far as one can tell. That's what's really eroding, I think, eroding confidence. And, you know, the discovery that all these... I mean, from everything, from, you know, musicians not able to travel abroad and play easily in each country to uh, the growing gap between our own productivity and Germany's, uh, you know, the GDP in Germany. I mean, it's... There's, uh, maybe there is, in ten years' time, everyone will say, yes, that was a good thing we did and sovereignty was restored, but... At the moment, it seems to be kind of eroding confidence in politicians, and certainly in the Tory party, has led to this hopeless shambles of, you know, you, you know, you're 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 a better Brexiteer than me. You believe, you know, it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So you voted Remain. Meaning politics. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> in my family, we have a way of doing that. By the way, we go. <laughs> is more polite. <laughs> yes. So I voted for Brexit and I'm regretting it. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, it is, it is I, I think it's very, very frightening at the moment, don't you? I mean, I think it really is quite alarming. And, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I, you know, you cannot, I, I don't 
entirely blame the politicians on you know the far right or whoever who do because I'm I'm not I'm not convinced that they're all charlatans but it's just that it's it it's so demeaning the way that it's being conducted I mean you were doing your Gavin Williamson beautiful Gavin Williamson impression and it reminded me I'd forgotten he was the man who swore on his children's heads do you remember that he hadn't leaked information from the cabinet committee that's right and then it turned out he had and I went does he have to cut his children's heads off? <laughs> what does Gavin Williamson do then? Huh? What, do, what do you do if you swore? What does it mean to swear on my children's heads? I, mean, I think in our constitution, because it's such a mess, it's, it's, it's pretty unclear, but um, on constitutional issues, and you mentioned, um, effectively alluded to the, the royal funeral earlier, which you were, uh, you, you were part of, the BBC's relationship with politicians is one thing. Its relationship with the royal family perhaps in tune with broad public opinion is, is very respectful, but do you think the BBC is too deferential to the royals? Well, the old, the old BBC line was always, um, and it kept, they came unstuck when they, when they did it for the Duke of Edinburgh, but the old line always used to be, um, you can't overdo um, support for the royal family and for royal events because you upset more people if you don't do it properly than people are offended by having too much of it. So some people, say you have a jubilee, and you do a whole day's broadcasting, um, and a lot of people complain, but actually the people who uh, will complain much more vociferously and more damaging for BBC are the people who think you haven't done enough. So there's always been a, a slight element of overkill. Um, funnily, until the Duke of Edinburgh's fest, um, festival, when the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, when weirdly, do you remember, I don't really remember, they, they had, um, Radio 3 gave up classical music in favour of some of the Duke's favourite tunes, which was the string, sort of hornpipes. All, all, I don't know whether they did hornpipes, but I don't know where they got the music from. But, but the BBC's relationship is, is, is interesting because the thing I'm critical about is, I mean, I think their, their coverage is, of these things is, is pretty impeccable, sort of world-class coverage. And if you're a Republican, you don't like it, you know, of course not. And if you're a, um, a sort of democratic monarchist who thinks it's fine, it's the best way of having, you've got to have a head of state of some sort, and it's better than having superannuated politicians, and you know, as long as they don't interfere, da la la, that's fine. Um, but where I think the BBC doesn't serve the public properly is that I don't think it explores out of fear of falling out of favour with the Crown. I don't think it explores some of the contentious issues about the sovereign's power, for instance, to change legislation that affects, directly affects the sovereign's uh, possessions in the Duchy of Cornwall or uh, the Duchy of Lancaster, or indeed anything else that in her day the Queen thought might affect her, her possessions, her um, legal position, whatever it was. They, it, she had the right to strike out legislation. I think that's... Well, first of all, I think it's outrageous. And secondly, I don't think it's ever been properly discussed. And the other thing I don't think has been discussed are the tax affairs. You know, they made the gesture after the fire in Windsor Castle in the Annus Horribilis, when incidentally the, the Queen at um, the annual dinner at, um, at the, um, in, in, in the city said, no institution, and she, and she said, not even the monarchy, should be um, free of examination and discussion and debate. She said it. 
said, long as it's conducted courteously or something, in Guildhall. And it was, I thought, very striking. She was actually inviting a debate, in effect, about what the role of monarchy should be. And in a democracy, it seems to me the role of monarchy is something that should be examined. I mean, that is what a democracy is. So, um, I, uh, but the BBC is very squeamish, institution is squeamish, about looking at, probing at any of those things. Um, and I think that's wrong. I think that's not doing a service. To, the BBC always claims it's, you know, it's, it's our BBC, we pay for it. So I think it should do uh, much, more, uh, much more scrutiny of the constitutional relationship. I'm not saying we should have... I mean, I did once do a debate with, with, um, in Greenwich about whether we should be a republic. That argument goes nowhere. And people who want to be the country... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. To be a republic, fine, they say they want a republic. You then start looking at how you become a republic. You look at the fact we have an unwritten constitution and actually to write it down would probably take a decade of people arguing and we've got enough to argue about. And where would you end up, you know, you end up with a, a, a president. Even the Australians, last time they had a go, turned against it because they thought it was too difficult. So I'm quite, I think most people are quite happy with the, the arrangement. I mean, not, you know, the young, young people, mm, iffy. It's actually a rising number of young people who are dubious about whether having a monarchy is right. But while it's there, to have a public broadcaster like the BBC not, con not constantly, but not prepared to look in depth at its workings, I think is wrong. And Buckingham Palace would certainly will try and prevent it. I mean, they're, you know, they're very PR conscious. They're all very PR conscious at the palace. I mean, the Prince of Wales PR people, in the past Prince Andrew's PR people, Queen's PR people, they all have you know, a view about how things should be done and would, would try and prevent it. I mean, I remember going to, I wanted to do a, a film once, years back, and, uh, about the, the, political, the political handling of monarchy after the death of Queen Victoria, which was really interesting. Um, and uh, Edward VII and George V, who had really clever politicians who came and helped them work out how to make the monarchy popular again because it, Queen Victoria had fallen into complete disarray. She never went to the state opening of parliament. We've never seen in public, you know. And if the thing was to work, they had to sort of find a way of getting across to the British public. And I prepared this um, programme, and I went to Buckingham Palace to see the press officer and um, said, this is what we want to do. And I remember it so well, and he, he listened to what, what we said. And then he said, yes, well, we, 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 I, get, I get what you're trying to do. Um, I'll put it like this. Um, you go ahead and do it if you like, but I just have to tell you, we will not cooperate in any way. End of story. And this was a, this was a, a really interesting thing about you know, the way that the politics of monarchy works. So that, I, I, I don't think it's a... I mean, it's not the biggest thing in the world, and you know, it'll go on, and the king will do fine. But it's just odd that that one little bit of our court constitution, we let it get away with 
things. And I find that a bit weird. You know, everybody else, we leap on when they have money in tax havens abroad. But the fact that the monarch has tax havens in this country, you think, well, why is that right? Is that right then? <laughs> Um, so, we've got time for some audience questions, so oh, no. um, if we can have a very clear indication now. I usually pick the woman, questions. no, sorry, the man. Yes. <laughs> well, this is the thing, I have to repeat the questions for the benefit of the podcast, but David, it would be a great honour for, for our audience to, to have the question time. So, for the first time ever, I'm going to let the guest pick their own questions. So, if you'd like to indicate if you've got a question for David, and David, excellent. Is somebody there? Yeah, okay, simple as that. Can I ask David... Looking into your crystal ball, I think we have till December 2024 until the next election. I wondered what your forecast of the result would be. You said the whole thing has been a calamitous catastrophe. Is there any way that you could see that Sunak or some such could possibly pull it? Do you know, I actually think, which is maybe odd, I think it's too soon to tell. I think that... I think that um, Labour is not cutting through at the moment with the electorate. I think Labour is there as a sort of... And, 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 and the leadership of the Labour Party is, is not... Uh, it, uh, maybe he's holding his fire. Maybe there is no fire. I don't know. But um, he, he's holding it, you know, steady. And I think a lot will depend on what happens in the next two years and whether Sunak can actually turn it round. So I wouldn't be surprised, frankly, if there were... Um, a small Sunak majority. I wouldn't be surprised because I think that it's difficult for Labour. I mean, they, you know, they've, they've got rid of the, the far left in the party. They're working a way to turn it into a more centrist party. But its leadership is not exactly at the moment what you'd call charismatic. <laughs> Just on I, I would say. Wouldn't you? I mean, I don't know. Maybe, we don't, maybe we're fed up with charisma. Maybe we've had too much bloody charisma. <laughs> Liz Truss was charisma, and we don't want any more of that. Just on election night, how soon before you announced the exit poll are you aware of its contents? Uh, the exit poll is... I hate the exit polls, because they spoil the fun. But they to, told us about um, 20 minutes before what and, they think they are. And of all of them... Do you remember, are there any particular that... They were asking the questions. I know, but I, I still get to have a, a okay. little go. Oh, do you? You make the rules. Well, sort of, but are there any exit polls that you've seen? I mean, 27, 20, yeah, 2017 was a surprise for people. 1992 obviously got... Well, they used to get them wrong always. That was the great joy of exit polls, because all, <laughs> all the, all the sophologists had egg on their face, which I loved, because I thought exit polls were boring, because 5 to 10 comes and the programme starts with that. Da 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 dum da. Can you do that music? I say, can anybody remember that music? It's wonderful. And I'm standing there, absolutely shaking in my feet with nerves, and trying to remember what the opening line is. Good evening, and welcome to election night on the BBC. You know, and then da da dum. And the, the, you can't give the poll away until ten o'clock. And. Um, uh, for, for the re it would be illegal, actually, because you're not allowed to poll. You're allowed to poll on election on day, yes. but you're not allowed to announce any polls right. under the... Should it influence people who could still vote? Because, well, or it could it influence you, or you could make a fucking fortune, couldn't you? <laughs> if you knew, you know... That's another way of saying it. That's yeah. another way of putting it. So, <laughs> so it was always very... Oh, good point. Yeah. So if you're getting it 20 minutes before everyone yeah. else... 
Did you ever? I could double my fee or triple it. <laughs> and just a little quick thing. No, so that, so it was very carefully done. And the, the last time, the last lecture, the second last lecture, we were rehearsing all this, and we had to, we were taken into a room to one side, and the door was locked so that we couldn't escape and ring up our. Bro- uh, not our broker, uh, <laughs> uh, whatever they're called. Book. What are they called? Bookie. The book. Wife! <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Wife. Someone said wife, yeah. You can that get was my wife. wife. Well, for you. So, so we, were, we were locked in, and there was me and Jeremy Vine, because he had to do the first thing, and the Director General, then Director General of BBC, Tony Hall, and John Curtis, Sir John Curtis now, who was doing the polling, was away. He'd been away with kind of computers and his own sophologists in a separate part of London, and we were at Elstree. He rang through the result of the exit poll, and so we and we were uh, completely taken by surprise by it, and we wrote down the notes and everything, and, and discussed how I should present it, what I should say, uh, whether I say a likely Tory victory or likely whatever it was victory, and then fine, right, ready, back to the studio, went to the door. And we couldn't get out of this bloody room. And we were stuck. And then we started hammering on the door. And finally, um, one of the security people came and said, Anything the matter? Yes! Streamed out to this thing. And just made it to the studio in time. So it's a very hazardous business. Um, but the, but the, the other, the, the, there was another one which is weird when Major. We, we pr- this is so strange. Thatcher thought. The politicians think that the elect, election poll is, shows a sign of bias by the broadcasters. We predicted that Major was going to might lose and Foot might, rather than Kinnock might win or something. And it was fine. Major got a majority of about 80 or something, I think, that time. And the Tory party is it's typical BBC, you know, left wing, thought, you know, thought late. This is an exit poll. We don't go around <laughs> distorting exit polls. What, what earthly point would there be? Anyway, but I hate them because they spoil the fun. I mean, the real fun of election nights is, apart from the glamour, and the glamour's the great thing. I mean, we had one set. It was like being in a, Europe, in a, in a, in a Berlin nightclub in the sort of <laughs> mid-30s, you know. I loved it. Oh. Well, I feel bad for interrupting that fond memory. Yes, um, that was very fond. We'll take one more question. It's so beautiful, too. It all lit up. <laughs> I mean, twice the size of this theatre, the studio for the election. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And Jeremy Paxman way up there, so you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time for one more. Is that all? Well, I mean, I don't want to keep you all night. No, no, no. I don't want to keep the audience. Oh, no. Any time. But you get to pick, because you're the question picker. That, yes, the person there in the very, very front. Um, since the last election that you broadcast, what's the latest you've stayed up? Since the last election <laughs> broadcast, what's the latest you've stayed up? I mean, it's almost uh, half nine now. I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I stay right through. I, 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 yes. I don't just watch the BBC now. I watch the BBC and I watch ITV and I watch Sky. And I, I, no, I have fun. I love them. I love them. But Even in general, how long? Ha, what time do you go to bed in general? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you meant? Or why, an election night? Why do you want to know? Well, I thought that's what you meant. What a weird question. <laughs> well, did you mean on election night in or in general? general? Why, when do you go, how, why do you go? Why do you go to bed? I don't know when do you go to bed. <laughs> 
when do you go to bed in general? Well, I, well, I wasn't what about in particular? Ha- what? I thought the point of the question was... In particular, was, what? Yes. On election nights, you have to stay up particularly late, you know, through the night. Yes. But how... When was the last time you actually just stayed up late when it wasn't an election? Yeah, yeah. And when, I, when there wasn't an election? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, my... my uh, well, my... stepson's wedding. And I stayed up very, very drunk until half past five or something. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I being asked this question? <laughs> <laughs> and what's your tipple of choice at a wedding? Uh, well, it wasn't my tipple of choice. That was the problem. Jaeger <laughs> choice. <laughs> no, I, it, was, it was mojitos, but they'd forgotten about the lime juice, and it was mainly tequila. And there were jugs about that big. And I was quite thirsty, and I just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, anyway, that was an, that's another story. I've, I've forgotten most about that wedding. It was a great wedding, but I forgot the tail end of it. No. But tonight, you go to bed whenever you like. <laughs> Can I, I go to bed immediately after this? Um, okay, that, well, I, I feel like that was a bit of a strange vibe. So, <laughs> I think we have time for one more, David. It was I mean, personal, I thought, didn't you? Well, it, I mean, borderline pervy. Yeah. <laughs> What do you wear to bed? I thought it was going next. Are you pyjamas kind of guy? No. no. Either naked or nightshirt. <laughs> do you know what? Why am I telling you these things? <laughs> I came to talk about a book called Keep Talking. Well, reveal all this stuff. What better way yeah. than to go to bed with a good with David book? David Dimbleby. What? David <laughs> That, where's this going? <laughs> People read before they go to bed. Oh, I see, yeah, I read it. It's the perfect bedside companion. You were going to take another question. I was going to take another question. We've had two men. Did you ever try and get gender balance and stuff on questions? Always. And that's where it goes, it can be difficult, because in the half-light you can't always tell men from women. Okay. But so I would try and get gender balance, yes. And would you ever say, just ladies, please put your hand up? No. Just want to, no yeah. okay. You would no. still try and... So, um, a question from a woman, please. So all the men can put their hands down. No, no. No, I wouldn't do it. Wait. OK. No. Yes, there's a woman there. Yes, the lady over there. She's in white, not red. Yes. The woman in white. The woman in white. I'm <laughs> in blue. She's in blue. <laughs> not you, then. The other one. <laughs> What's what between the UK and the, the US? UK or the US? Oh, I think the US, to tell the absolute truth. I do. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, the, when the midterms? T- t- tomorrow, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Today. What's today? What is today? Tomorrow. Tuesday. It's Monday today, it's Tuesday tomorrow. Tuesday, is it m- tomorrow? <laughs> um, I mean, my, um, my son's working out for ITN in Washington, actually, so I'm briefed fully on what's going on from Washington, um, working as a, as a young trainee producer. And um, I, think, I, think this, I think there's something much more ominous about American politics. I think the whole Trump movement is absolutely terrifying, to tell the truth. And I don't think we've got that here. Um, I don't think we've got even a smidgen of that here. And we've, got, we've got lots and lots of difficult problems, but we don't have that kind of visceral loathing that seems to be imbuing American politics. And we have... I mean, they now say he's going, to, he's going to announce he's going to run once the midterms are over. Do you think he'll run? Yeah. You do? Yeah. I'm sure he may. 
I find that very, very frightening. Have you ever um, interviewed him? So we did try and interview him. Guess who got to interview him? Jonathan Dimbleby. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, Nigel Farage. Oh, God. <laughs> he held him to account. Um, well, uh, it was still uh, sort of a shame to end on the far right, but it was, it was better than ending on the, um, you know... Bedtime habits. <laughs> <laughs> but your book, Keep Talking, is out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton, and it is a phenomenal read. I have it on the bedside table. Lovely photo of you on the cover. Oh, <laughs> you're so sweet. I, I'm rather dubious about the photograph on the cover. Why? Looks a bit leery. I think it looks like I'm leering. Oh no, you've just got a, you've got a devilish twinkle in your eye. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, okay. The sort of twinkle that men who leer at you have. <laughs> <laughs> David, this has been an immense privilege. Before we let uh, David go to whatever nighttime routine he has planned for the evening, um, just time to let you know that next week my guest was meant to be Matt Hancock, but he's obviously not in the country. Um, so, he's been replaced by someone who's been turning over apple carts since, and uh, the outgoing chair of the Tory party, Jake Berry, who has not been holding back in a lot of his media interviews. Uh, and then the show after that, on the 5th of December, my guest is Rachel Reeves. And then on the 19th of December, it's the Christmas special. And then next year, the 23rd of January, is Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. And the 6th of March is Eddie Izzard. And there are other guests to be announced. But ladies... <laughs> How do you remember all this without autocue? Oh, I just, it's just all in there. You're just amazing. And you stood up there for a three quarters of an hour talking, chatting away without, without even a note or anything. We well, you know what, it's 20 minutes, but I'm touched that it felt like three quarters of an hour. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everyone here, but what a privilege. David Dimbleby! Oh, man, if you were there on the night, you know, he's... So when he's telling that story about Margaret Thatcher outside the White House, he's up and out of his chair, he's kneeling in front of me. When he's... There's a bit, which you may have um, gathered, when uh, he's talking about who he votes for, or not talking about who he votes for. And I joke about him voting Remain. He's the first ever guest that has ever given me the middle finger, flicked me the bird. Uh, so at first he just waved the middle finger at me, and then when he said, oh, we do this in our house or our family, he did that thing where he sort of wheeled the middle finger up with one hand and, and slowly raised the middle finger in the middle. Oh, he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And just, there's something so reassuring about, obviously I'd met him before when I'd done Question Time, but that's in a very professional setting. And he'd always been very, very friendly and very just warm and nice and just great company. But when you're with someone like that for an hour, you're opposite someone who... I mean, it did his first election night in 1970, anchored his first election night in 1979. It's just so many big moments, particularly for anyone who enjoys this show, obviously. He's just, he's been effectively the the, the John Motson or the, or the Des Lynam of politics, really, for so long. That voice and the personality, the whole thing was just, just such a mega treat. So I hope you enjoyed this. If you're there on the night, it was even more magical. Uh, and keep sharing the show. Tell people about it. Please leave a five-star written review. Do buy David's book. He writes as well as he talks. It's, it's, I'm just tearing through it. And I've put a link to where you can buy it there. Keep talking. Um, phenomenal uh, gift. Uh, just for yourself. Treat yourself to a great read. I love that story. I mean, there's so many bits keep coming back to me about... Um, when he's 12 and he's on the radio and this guy says, P.S. I'm fine. I'm very sorry. There's nothing we can do about that. 
just so funny um, and, and great company. I'm repeating myself now, as I often do, but thank you for downloading this. Please share it far and wide. And I will see you on the 14th of November when Jake Berry comes to the political party. That will be incredible. Think of what's happened. I mean, by the time I've recorded this, Gavin Williamson has now uh, resigned. Uh, so there's still a sense of chaos at the, at the very top of government. And Jake Berry is uh, perfectly placed to let us know exactly what's been going on behind the scenes. And then the 5th of December with Rachel Reeves, the 19th of December, the Christmas special MP4 providing the live music. I'll be able to reveal the guests very, very soon. And then 23rd of Jan, Emily Makeless and John Sopel. 6th of March, Eddie Izzard. More to be confirmed. And I'll see you next time. It's all right.